Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello. I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts, the show where we talk about going to space without ever leaving the planet. Today, we have a very special guest. He's been working in space for almost 50 years. He's a former president of the Canadian Space Agency and a current member of Canada's Space Advisory Board. I think it's also fair to call him one of the architects of Canada's space program. And if that doesn't qualify him as a Terranaut, I don't know what would. Mac Evans, welcome to Terranauts. Good day, even thank Ian. Thank you very much for having me on board. No, it's it's great to talk to you. Today is actually going to be a bit of a history lesson because I would say we have almost sixty years of space to cover because you've pretty been pretty much been around for almost all of it. So so let's wind the clock back all the way to like I think it's nineteen fifty seven. Um, you were a teenager living in Sarnia, and your dad took you out in the backyard to show you something brand new. That's correct. Uh, it was a clear night, and it was October 1957, and Sputnik had just been launched. And so my dad uh, took me out and said, look at that. It's going to change the world. And we saw the, uh, the light of the, uh, of the Sputnik go across the sky. And uh, from wow. then on, I've been very interested in, in space. But but when you graduated high school, went off to university. In those days, there was no such thing as space engineering. So, you, what did you take? Well, I took electrical engineering. I was advised that that I wanted to be in uh, the new uh, world of space. That electrical engineering was probably a good place. So, I went to Queen's University and got my bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. So, uh, and then after some, some time with graduate school in the UK, you come back to Canada and eventually you, you did make the fateful decision as it were, were to join the space program. Uh, and when was that? What did that look like? Well, when I was in England, uh, finishing up my fellowship there, uh, the defense and defense, um, research board, uh, sent some people over to recruit Canadians to come back to Canada to work in our defense research program. And for those of you who remember this, uh, it was in the defense research program that the Alouette satellites uh, were were constructed under the aegis of John Chapman. And uh, so I said, well, uh, that's where they're being built. That's where I want to go to work. So I accepted their offer and came back to Canada and started working out at what was then called the Defense Research Telecommunications Establishment which we all know now as the Communications Research Center, or CRC. And that's here at Shirley's Bay in Ottawa. That's here in Shirley's Bay in Ottawa, yes. And so uh, after a few years doing that, you eventually got offered uh, a really uh, interesting job on one of Canada's, uh, well, at that time it was Canada's largest and most powerful satellite, right? Yes, so I joined the the Defense Research Board in 1967, and in 1970, the government had decided that it uh, wanted to do a communication satellite program in cooperation with NASA. It was was called the Communications Technology Satellite, or CTS, which was named Hermes uh, when it was launched, 
And this was a major satellite communications program being run out of CRC uh, in a project team that included both government and industry people. It was a unique arrangement. And fortunately for me, the, the program manager at the time, uh, Colin Franklin, took a great leap of faith and asked me to join his uh, his team. And I became eventually the uh, mission director and systems manager for the communication technology satellite program. So what does being mission director of a satellite in uh, program in 1970 imply? Well, it was really quite interesting. We had to set up our own uh, mission control center. Uh, CRC had experience in this because they operated the Alouette and ISIS satellites. But this was something new because the satellite was always going to be in uh, view of of CRC. It was a geostationary satellite, whereas the Alouette and ISIS satellites were polar orbiting and and past. So they they were overhead for a few minutes and then they were gone. But CTS needed tender tender loving care for 24 hours a day. So so was Hermes our first geostationary satellite? No. it was the first government one, uh, the very first geostationary satellite for Canada, where the Alouette, uh, the Anik A series of satellites by Telsat Canada. Um, the first one, first one of those um, was launched in 1972. The CTS program was not launched until 1976. So, and it obviously, uh, it wasn't launched in Canada. No, it was a cooperative program in the United States. Uh, they they uh, provided the launch vehicle and the 200 watt, believe it or not, 200 watt traveling wave tube that was part of the of the satellite, and we operated it and we shared the use of the satellite with the Americans. It was the first satellite to operate in the 12, 14 gigahertz band, and it was the highest powered satellite ever launched, and it pioneered the direct-to-home broadcasting that we now take for granted. Really? So so you spent basically six years working on that. Uh, what was the night or the day of, uh, of launch like? You where did you, where did you watch the launch from? Well, I had to be at the uh, Mission Control Center in uh, Goddard Space Flight Center, just outside of uh, Maryland, uh, Washington. And... Uh, for the transfer orbit, NASA's responsibility was to launch the satellite and uh, separate it from the launch vehicle and uh, fire the, the uh, Apogee motor. Once that was done, uh, control of the satellite uh, reverted to our facility in, in Ottawa. So for the first three or four days, actually it was longer than that because we ran into a bit of a problem. and We had to solve that, uh, which we did. And then I came back to Ottawa with the team that we had set up here, and we did what was called attitude acquisition, which was a very exciting event. Because once the satellite was in geostationary orbit, it was spinning, and we had we had to move it. We had to change its its control mechanism from being a spinning top to being a three-axis stabilized satellite, and so. We had to do all of that, and the contracting team that I had working for me did uh, put together all the systems for allowing that to happen. Wow! So, so, so this is in 1976, right? That's correct, 1976. And and what did Canada's 
what did Canada's space program, uh, you know, beyond that one satellite, what did Canada's space program actually look like in 1976? Well, uh, the 1970s were actually quite a hyper period of time for the Canadian space program. Um, the 60s was dominated by the Alouette ISIS, a series of scientific satellites. The, um, but in 1962, uh, was when Alouette 1 was launched. Um, hmm. We have just after Alouette 1 is launched, uh, which, by the way, was launched, I believe, within two weeks of the after President Kennedy made his We're Going to the Moon speech. Right, so right. So that in context. Um, but a, night, a year after the Alouette 1 was launched, the first geosynchronous satellite ever launched was, was launched. It was SYNCOM 2. And that changed the game right. for us because the Alouette 1 ISIS satellites were aimed at studying the ionosphere to better understand the ionosphere so that we could have more reliable communications into the north. Because we right. in those days we used HF uh, communications to do that. The advent of geosynchronous communication satellite changed everything because we now had a different, totally different technology for, and much more reliable right. technology for communicating into the north. This led to a whole bunch of right. things in Canada, including the famous Chapman report, um, the creation of, of Telesat Canada, the, uh, the procurement of the satellites, annex series of satellites from Hughes Aircraft, uh, the beginning of the right. communications technology satellite program. So by the time CTS was launched, um, we were very heavily moving into the satellite communications era. Uh, tell us, right. tell us right. right, but but what like a lot of people forget though, in 1976, we didn't have any astronauts, right? No, no, no astronauts. So we and the other thing that happened in the 1970s was the Canada Center for Remote Sensing was established. Which which uh, got Canada into the remote sensing business in a big way. Right. So all of these things were being put in but, place. But these, put in place. But these were all. But these were all separate agencies. There was a, there wasn't actually even a Canadian Space Agency in 1976. No, no there was not. So each department, uh, Energy, Mines, Resources, Department of Communication, National Research Council, we all they all ran their own space programs. There was a uh, right coordinating committee called the Interdepartmental Committee on Space, which attempted to um, right. um, put some sort of policy but, but framework. In, in terms of all the things that Canadians are familiar with today, we, we, we certainly had, we hadn't flown the Canada arm. Had we even talked to NASA about building one? Um, the answer is yes. In 1975 or so, I think NRC, uh, NASA came to the world and said, uh, we, we, do you want to participate in our post-Apollo program, which was the shuttle program? Right. And uh, they, okay. they came to Canada, and Canada, through a series of proposals from industry uh, taken up by National Research Council, proposed to NASA that we would do a robotic arm for the shuttle. And, and then okay. we... Okay, so... That was, signed yeah, in 19, that was signed in 1975, I believe. So, yes, in the middle of the okay. 1970s, we were talking about uh, robotics. We were talking about Earth observation, and we clearly were heavily involved in satellite communications. 
This led, right. by the way, to the so, government's very first, yeah. very first uh, policy statement, and there was a, a formal space policy in 1974, which really outlined the objectives for the Canadian space program as a whole. Right. And it talked about using space to meet national needs, and it talked about right. ensuring that we do this in a way that that enhances the industrial capacity in the country. Right. So, so that's in 1976. Now, if you fast forward 10 years to 1986, we have a national space agency, the Canadian Space Agency. We've flown an astronaut. We've flown the Canada Arm as part of the shuttle. And we've just signed an international treaty to join the space station, right? All of those things are true, right? That's correct. In 10 years. In 10 years. How much of that were you involved in in those 10 years? Well, I happen to be... Uh uh, when I left the Department of Communications in 1979 to join the Ministry of State for Science and Technology because the government had decided that that's where the Canadian Space Program leadership would come from, so I went there. So I was involved uh, basically uh, in um, the development of the arrangements uh, that allowed Canada to participate in the International Space Station. Uh, they led to the interdepartmental government agreement, intergovernmental agreement, and the memorandum of understanding, which are the foundational documents for the space station program. I led the uh, MOU discussions and was co-chair with the intergovernmental arrangements. Um, the, the so you, you use very governmental language, Mike. You use very governmental language when you describe that, but you basically help negotiate an international treaty, is what you're saying. That's correct. The space station is governed by an international treaty, and uh, yeah, it was a very interesting time. We spent two years. Um, the the counter arm people with, with uh, Gary Lindbergh and Carl Deutsch uh, providing the technical background and. And um, myself, I guess, giving some policy input to this and leading the exercise. We we spent two years negotiating those agreements, which uh, wow, which were and that was with the not only NASA but the Europeans and the Japanese as well. That's correct. We when we were doing the memorandum of understanding negotiations, it was bilateral. It was us with NASA, a separate meeting between ESA and NASA, and not, not between Japan and NASA. Yeah. But for the intergovernmental agreement, well, that must which, have been, which is the treaty, it was the three of the, yeah. the four parties all together, ESA, Japan, Canada, and the United States, all and, sitting in one room. And, and, and these are four groups that have never worked together in space before at the time. A lot of bilateral stuff, but nothing in a multilateral nature like this. So those must have been some fairly interesting discussions. Oh, yes. We, <laughs> we had to pioneer a lot of, uh, lot of ground. We pioneered... Um, the management structure, which some people will claim is a bit overhand, uh, overwhelming, but it was the type of management structure that really was necessary for a multinational effort as large as this. And that, I think, that management structure has stood the test of time. The space station is still operating basically under the same agreements that we signed in 1986. So, so why do you think it all came together at the end? I mean, you know, that's four groups that have never worked together. There's a, there's an awful lot um, at stake. But and even although two years sounds like a long time, it's it's really not that long for something of that scale. What what was the atmosphere in the room or the or the imperative outside the room that got that deal done? Do you think? 
I think it was clearly the fact that uh, this program was a major foreign policy initiative of President Reagan. He wanted to be able to show to the rest of the world. Really? Yes, he wanted to be able to show to the rest of the world that the Western world uh, approach to space was uh, much more open, much more cooperative than what the Russians were doing at the time. Remember, uh, the Russians had their own space station already in orbit, and they were flying astronauts from a whole host of Eastern Bloc countries, and they were winning the public right the public uh, awareness uh, uh, campaign for space. And so Reagan had decided this is what he wanted to do, was to show the world that we could do things better in a better way. So it was a very major policy initiative of the President of the United States. It, of course, caught the attention of uh, the Prime Minister of Canada and the Ministry of uh, People in, in Europe and the same in Japan. And so there was a very significant national interest on the part of all countries to make this work. And so it was that atmosphere which allowed us to proceed and, and, and sign the agreements. So were there any points, though, in that negotiation when, when it, you really wondered whether it was going to go at all? There was one major point, and that was the uh, peaceful uses of the space station. The United States, oh yeah, the United States had set out uh, NASA with with uh, the Department of Defense there, wanting to protect the ability of the United States to use this, the uh, space station for military purposes. And East of Japan and Canada were dead set against that, and so. The most the most contentious issue was breaking that back, and uh, eventually it did. And so you'll see that in in the documents, the the, the purpose of space station is for peaceful purposes. Right. So the Americans, in the end, agreed to the conditions of the other three. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So so now it's 1986. Uh, things are. You know, things have really taken off. Canada's got a space agency. We're part of space station. We're flying the arm on the shuttle regularly. We've got an astronaut program. But literally eight years later, by 1994, it almost comes apart. Uh, and it starts actually the U.S. is the place where where there's the first second thoughts about space station, right? That's correct. Uh, they had gone through some significant design reviews because uh, the budget was skyrocketing. And, right. and Congress, Congress came within one vote of canceling the uh, space station program. Really? And I think the international wow. international partners, the Europeans, the Japanese, and ourselves uh, helped carry the program over the, over the uh, finish line there. So, so did you actually, did you actually speak to Congress about it? Were you a part of that uh, effort? We were part of the effort. Uh, I personally know, um, but our minister, at the time did, and so did the ministers from from the other countries. So it was well known in the United States uh, Congress that the international partners um, re- reminded the United States this was a treaty obligation and that uh, we were quite anxious to make sure it continued. So, and, but in fact, Canada almost pulled out of the space station on its own, right? I mean, I'm told that the text of the 1994 budget speech actually says we're going to leave, but then the finance minister didn't actually say that. That's So we did. That's correct. Um, in 1994, there was a new government in place. The um, 
know, Christian government, the Minister of Finance was Paul Martin. And their number one objective was to get the government expenses under control. And so they, they had uh, put together a budget which uh, dramatically cut most government departments as they pursued their objective. And the space program, Canadian Space Agency, was caught up in that. Um, but through a series of uh, events that, uh, that where John Manley, the minister, insisted that uh, that the space and space station uh, was an important aspect of Canada's future in space, uh, Canada's future period. Uh, he, he argued and, uh, with the, uh, with, uh, the government and he agreed that, uh, he got them, got the government to agree that if Canada could put together a, a, a new revised version of our participation in space station that was going to cost less, that the government would stay in. And this process unfolded. Um, and uh, I was leading that process and negotiations with the United States and our industry and our universities, everybody together trying to piece together what would make a reasonable uh, program for Canada in space that included space station uh, and radar set and science and astronauts and tech development and all the things that you have in a balanced program that the government would allow us to stay in space station. And that, that agreement came to fruition just before the budget was uh, to be tabled. The printed document says we're, we're, we're going to get out of space station, but the, the uh, speech that actually took place in the House of Commons did not say that. So we came, we came within a... It was as close as you ever yeah, want to come. we came within a day or two of uh, uh, withdrawing from the program. Wow. So, so we don't pull out of the space station. The U.S. turns space station freedom into eventually what became the international ISS and actually invites the Russians in. Um, the U.S. starts setting shuttle to Mir. By the late 90s, we're building ISS. And then eventually we actually end up sending a Canadian astronaut to command it. And, and pretty much all of that came from that work that, that was done in the late 70s and through the 80s, right? That's true. I mean, it, this is a continuum of effort. Uh, you know, it started with the, in, in the human spaceflight. It started with Canadarm, the invitation for us to, to, to uh, fly astronauts. The space station, the agreement that we had with NASA that we fly one Canadian a year. Uh, all of this uh, flows one thing to the other, and that's what got us in the mid-1990s with, with a significant number of astronaut flights. Uh, the selection of a new set of astronauts with right. Julie, David, and Chris, and uh, their right. flights. Uh, so it was a sort of a heyday, if you will, of astronaut flights. It was a heyday from our space right. industry point of view because they had a very large program to work on. They also, by the way, in this period, this time frame, uh, had the RadarSat program approved. We had a space science. Sure. SciSat was a space science program was approved. Uh, so it was quite a balanced <laughs> program. And uh, it and, you know, where Canada was sort of covering all aspects of what it takes to have a good space program. Right, right. So, so now don't take this the wrong way, but I think basically through the course of this conversation, you basically told me that you got to space, and in fact, Canada got to space by going to a whole lot of meetings. <laughs> oh, yes. 
Now, now some people might say that that doesn't sound like a very exciting career, but I don't think that's fair. I, I mean, I've worked on my share of committees too, and I think it's actually fair to say that when you meet with people and you work on committees and you're working on something that's really important to everybody and really worthwhile, that that's actually a pretty interesting and fulfilling way to spend your time. Indeed. You know, um, going back to my days when my father showed me Sputnik 1 going across the sky, I I really wanted to be part of the space program. I wanted Canada to have a, a significant space program. Uh, I did my stint as a technical person and mission director uh, for the communications technology satellite. Then I moved into the policy area, both at the Department of Communications headquarters and then again at Ministry of State for Science and Technology, where I was in a place and at a time where major policy decisions that were going to set the stage for our space program were being made. And so I was, while these were a lot of meetings uh, with a lot of folks, both uh, domestically and internationally, um, the net, net result, you could, you know, I, I, my gratification came from seeing that Canada was participating in a wide range of, of programs, uh, space exploration with astronauts, with Canada Arms, uh, remote sensing with radar set, communication satellite, science satellite. Uh, so our industry and our university community and our users community, community were having uh, all of their needs looked after with, with the space program we were able to put in place. So, so your dad took you out to watch Sputnik. Uh, now, I know you have grandkids, right? I do. Uh, are you going to take them out uh, and point out Space Station as it goes overhead someday? Done it. <laughs> Already one and the other one's. And, and and did you tell them how many little pieces of you are on board that spacecraft? Uh, no, <laughs> but I did. Tell, they they think I, I think the next time you should. Let's uh, just tell them that this is Canada. I think the next time you should. Well, they know that I work in the space program, and uh, and uh, they they do they do space projects from time to time at school, and so uh, that's another area of satisfaction for me. So, uh, so I think that's probably going to wrap it up today, Mac. And, and I want to thank you not only for coming on today, but also, uh, you know, on behalf of uh, all Canadians who are interested in space for all of the stuff that you did to literally get us off the ground. Well, thanks very much, Ian. And uh, it's been a pleasure to do this with you. And um, all I can say is that in my experience uh, over these almost 50 years in the space program, uh, one thing has always always impressed me, and that is that Canadians have the knowledge and the tech expertise and the skills to do just about anything they want. And so, and we've shown that in space, and it's it's been a real honor to have been part of that process. Well, and hopefully, if you keep uh, listening to the show, you'll hear about lots of other Canadians and other people who keep doing those amazing things from the ground while they work in space. Thanks, Mac. You're welcome. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet.
Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.